Stop studying and start communicating. Learning a language is really, really, really hard. If you want to succeed at learning a language, you have to immerse yourself and you have to have patience. And learning a language can change your life. I have been saying the same things on my YouTube channel for almost four years. And I'm sure that you are all sick and tired of me repeating myself. So today you are going to hear from somebody different. But not just anybody. One of the most important and influential people working in the field of language today. Author of multiple papers and books about language and culture, Mr. Daniel Everett. Hello, Dan Everett. Thank you. Thank you very much for talking to me. It's great to be uh, talking to you uh, today. I see the kangaroo on your sweatshirt. <laughs> yes, um, b- because you know um, it's it's two thousand and and eighteen. So now people are brands. You know, not not coming. Right, right. So so you know, I'm I'm a brand. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that probably um, for people who don't know you, um, you know, people who do know you, I think you're most famous for your work with with, with the Pidahan language um, and and all of that. But but for people who don't know you, could you sort of just introduce yourself um, a little bit? <laughs> yeah, sure. I. Uh, um began my career um, uh, wanting to be a missionary in Brazil and went down to the Amazon to translate the Bible uh, for a group of hunter-gatherers. And along the way, um, the reverse conversion went on where I became an atheist like they are, Mm -hmm. and I got more interested in language and anthropology. And so for the past 30 years or so, I've been... um, doing a range of research on the Pinaha language and other languages about uh, the nature of human language, the nature of human cognition and culture. And I've written several books on these topics. Yes, yes. And in fact, I have a copy here of your, of your new book, which is called How Language Began, which, which is an incredible book. I really, I really enjoyed it. Um, well, congratulations. Oh, good. I'm glad. Thank you. Um, and I think, I think for me, the most, maybe the most shocking thing is that, you know, I, I tell my students now that, that language has existed for at least 65,000 years, because that seemed to be the figure that always came up, you know, in, in the agreed consensus. But, but your new book puts the date much further back, much, much further back. Yes, I mean, it really depends on the perspective you take and the evidence that you look for. But um, the 65,000 to, I mean, you get people saying 50,000, 65,000, 100,000. Some people have put it as far back as 400,000 years ago with Neanderthals. But I do think that the evidence is strong, and I try to present it in the book, that in fact Homo erectus more than a million years ago almost certainly had language when we look at the total array of uh, accomplishments of that species. And um, a colleague of mine from the University of Liverpool Department of Archaeology and I are uh, working on an article together looking uh, more closely at Homo erectus tools and arguing that those were symbolic. And if they're symbolic, then they had language. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing when... I think for me, reading the book is so many things that I thought were, that, that I considered to be facts, were just for me sort of blown out of the water. Like things about, you know, how the, the human vocal tract, you know, only allowed language to be produced very recently. And it, it's all just, it's lies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it, the human vocal tract uh, supports language. So it wouldn't have been there first language would have been there first and all the other things that we see came along to support language i mean speech with the human vocal apparatus has gotten better and clearer and faster over the years um but you don't need that many sounds uh to to have a language i mean i as i've said in many places computers really only make two sounds zero and one uh, which is the binary language of computer science, and they can say anything. So you don't need that many sounds. Um, somebody told me once, if you're correct, then um, we're just talking apes. And uh, yeah, well, that's the exact uh, idea that I'm trying to get across in the book. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I wonder, maybe it's like an inferiority complex. People, people don't like to consider themselves as animals, but really, we're just animals, really, you know, like... Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing, and that's what, uh, you know, Darwin and Wallace um, were two of the originators. Actually, there's another guy, Matthews, that came up with the theory of natural selection before either one of those guys. But uh, Wallace and Darwin came up with the theory of natural selection. And for Darwin, it explained language, it explained the mind. But for Wallace, who was a bit of a theist, he couldn't allow that natural selection could explain language. Mm. And so he proposed that the mental was outside the reach of natural selection. Huh. Um, this is popular today in the work of Noam Chomsky, for example, that natural selection cannot explain um, uh, how language evolved because language didn't evolve. It sort of popped into being. But if I'm correct, language is just like everything else. It evolved slowly through human invention and then biology adapting to make that work even better. Yeah, I mean, look, as, as you know, I, I'm not a specialist in this field, really, but it just, it, it seems, it seems crazy to think that everything that we know as, as, as fact about evolution and how it works and how slow it is, you know, everything like, um, you know, how, how, how species change over time, and, and yet, I don't understand why people think that, that language would be different, that language would suddenly pop into existence. I mean, why, why would anybody think that it's different, you know? <laughs> well, uh, especially when you look at other species. The more we learn about other species, we find tool use from octopus, from the octopus to capuchin monkeys to chimps, to all sorts of creatures use tools. All sorts of creatures communicate. Um, Arguably, but I wouldn't even hang my, you know, I wouldn't even want to make a big line in the sand about this. Mm. But arguably, only humans have are known to invent symbols. And that really does seem to be the big difference. A symbol is a, a form, so there are signs, and signs are just, uh, you know, so a footprint is a sign of whatever left it there. It's a physical index of um, the thing that created it. 
a painting is a sign in the sense that it looks like the thing that it represents. But symbols are different because we agree upon them as a culture. Mm. And so, you know, for example, the word dog in English refers to a domesticated canine, whereas in Spanish it would be perro, and in Portuguese, cachorro. Uh, but those are just conventional cultural uh, decisions on how to label that particular thing. And once you get those symbols, uh, all you need to do is put them in a row and you've got you've got a grammar and you've got a language. Yeah, yeah. In, in fact, I, I remember uh, I read something on Twitter um, a, a, about a year ago and somebody, somebody was talking about elephants and they said, elephants are so highly evolved. They have a specific rumbling sound they make when they see bees and they're in danger. And the person said, why, um, why, why can't humans be as, as clever as, our, as elephants to have this specific sound? And the, the, the first comment was, we do have a specific sound and it's, be careful, there's bees here. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. You know, and, and, um, so what humans do, uh, we can think of, um, one, one thing I, I talk about in the book is if we think of communication, and I think all creatures communicate, elephants, ants, bees, chimps, if communication is the sharing of information, then uh, language seems to be the sharing of information by means of symbols. So what we do is pretty much the same what, as all other creatures do, except that we have this symbolic component, which means we have cultures that support signs that we've all agreed on. And that's, when you stop and think about it, that doesn't mean that we're that superior to all the other creatures. We found a really good tool called the symbol, and, and we're the only ones that seem to have it. But, you know, people have argued that other creatures have it. And I, I uh, you know, bees in their bee dance, uh, we, we might say that what they do is symbolic, some sorts of birds. I don't think they actually reach the level of symbolic in the sense that I mean it. But, um, but I do not a priori rule out the possibility that other animals are similar to us in many ways. In fact, they're obviously similar. We're all animals. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, sure. I mean, to, to me, again, as a non-specialist, you know, a, a bee might, might do the bee dance, but, but surely for it to become symbolic, there needs to be some type of intention. Like if they do it because, you know, their biology pushes them to do it in the same way that, you know, we, we know how to, to, to eat because it's something we have to do to survive. Surely without intention, the symbol is meaningless. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I, that's a good argument, and it's been used many times. It's just really difficult to prove that bees have no intentions. Oh. But I do think <laughs> in, the, in the archaeological record is something uh, really magnificent. So three million years ago, there's this pebble found in a... I mean, it was found recently, but, uh, but it was put there three million years ago by Australopithecus africanus. This is not even a member of our genus. I mean, this is pre-human. And it's a, it's a little pebble about um, two by, by three inches. I should give that in centimeters, but can't think of what it is right offhand. Uh, um, yeah. But it is, I, I, is that in the book? Is that, is that this? Yeah, yeah. There's a picture of it in the book. That's it right there. Yeah. So, so you find them contemplating this they brought it up to the cave and you have evidence that this creature 
was looking at that because it looked like a face they were contemplating. That's something we don't see anywhere else in the archaeological record before we get to humans. So already we find Australopithecines starting to become aware of, of their environment with an intentionality and, and, and picking up on your, your word there, picking up the, using intentionality in a way we don't see prior to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, I think you know your 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 specific field of study have has nuances that 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 I don't you know fully understand. Um, I, I I wanted to talk a little bit about about because you know my my interest really is in is in language teaching and language learning, and and I yeah. wanted to just if you don't mind, I wanted to read you a quote from from page five of your book. Um, I don't know if it's strange for you to have somebody read your, your words back to you. I don't, um, okay, but it says here, um, language did not fully begin when the first hominid uttered the first word or sentence. It began in earnest only with the first conversation, which is both the source and the goal of language. Indeed, language changes lives. It builds society, expresses our highest aspirations, our basest thoughts, our emotions, and our philosophies of life. But all language is ultimately at the service of human interaction. Other components of language, things like grammar and stories, are secondary to conversation. And like for me, reading that, um, you know, as a teacher, and this is something I'm, I'm interested in in your perspective. You know, as a teacher, to me, I think that that message is lost in the world of language, in the world of language teaching and learning. You know, that, that communication is, is priority, basically. Yeah, and I, I agree with you completely. I think that com if you can't communicate, if you can't carry on a conversation, there's no sense in what you speak that language. I mean, uh, we've all come up against um, really smart uh, college students, for example, or high school students who've, who've learned a lot of English grammar or some other language's grammar, and they can pronounce the words perfectly, they just can't take part in a meaningful conversation. Yeah. And, and one of the first studies that I ever did in my graduate work was to look at the Portuguese spoken by Americans in Brazil and compared that to the Portuguese spoken by Brazilians. <laughs> and it's funny because uh, some of the Americans had been there for like 30 years. They had no problem with vocabulary. They had no problem with the subjunctive mood or anything like that in Portuguese grammar. But they did have problems with intonation and the proper kinds of conversational markers that let people know when it's okay to come into the conversation, uh -huh. uh, when the conversation is over, or when we're changing topics. These are skills that require constant interaction. So I've often argued that you can't learn a language unless you're in the midst of the culture and really living as part of that culture. So hmm. if I want, I mean, Spanish was the first foreign language I ever came into contact with, but it's because I lived eight miles from the Mexican border and all my friends, I, I had only about four or five friends who didn't speak Spanish in the home. Oh, really? And wow. so, yes. I mean, th this is a Spanish-speaking area, Southern California. I mean, the Spanish is the number one language. So if, <laughs> if I went to a friend's house, he spoke perfect English. But at home, even though his parents might speak perfect English, they only spoke Spanish. because, And I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to understand what they were talking about. 
And I couldn't get that just, just from books. It was, we had Spanish class and I would learn something about Spanish grammar and Spanish sounds. But what made it come alive was to then walk outside the classroom and talk to Mexican Americans. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and it was, it was really fun. I mean, it was just great when you can put it into practice like that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, exactly. Um, I mean, here, in, in, in my experience, because I, I teach English here in, in Spain, and, right. and, and it is, um, you know, it, it is a, a, a really common thing here that students have great grammar. You know, you can give them a worksheet and they can do the worksheet in record time. But, you know, the minute you, you put them in any kind of conversation, they just, they have no experience in conversation. Um, and, and you know when when I was at school at high school, I studied French for five years, and I came away with nothing, like nothing, yeah. like, and and it just seems that um you know all the students I talk to all over the world, it's it's a really common theme that that I mean because I read an interview you did about the state of of language learning in America and it's similar in the right. UK and it's similar in Australia it's difficult to get students actually interested in learning a language and then when they do you know it's difficult to then somehow give them something useful right that they can actually right. use um, right. I mean what, what do you do what do you think about the state of language sort of learning today you know well, I think one of the most difficult, I mean, it obviously used to be the center of, of education. I mean, if you go back 100 years, especially to the UK and the so-called classical education, learning a foreign language, although they were ironically tended to be dead languages, Latin and Greek, but learning a foreign language was considered extremely important for teaching people about thinking. I mean, that's one of the most important things about language learning to me is that when you learn to converse with other people, you learn about other ways of thinking, other ways of looking at the world. Hmm. But it's really hard to do that. <laughs> it is. And learning so, a language is extremely difficult. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's. There, I don't think there's any mystery to it. People ignore the benefits of learning a language because it is so hard to learn it. But if you break it down into percentages of your life, it really doesn't take all that long. You know, let's say that, um, you know, I give these things called monolingual demonstrations where I show people how to start learning a language when there's no language in common. And then I joke at the end of it, which is actually not a joke. Just do this every day for a few years and you'll have it. <laughs> and it, it, there's just no shortcut. You see these methods learned such and such in 90 days. There's no such shortcut. They don't exist. Yeah. The language learning takes a lot of your time, a good part of your life. And all I can say, though, is that it lasts for the rest of your life with very little maintenance required. And it is the benefits are just incredible. No one has ever, I've never heard anyone say, oh, gee, I'm sorry I speak Spanish. Uh, or I'm te it's terrible that I've learned to speak French. You know, I mean, people who speak these languages take great pride in the fact that they can speak them and they can go there and identify with the people. You know, my greatest compliment uh, when I was in Spain was uh, I asked somebody, you know, how's my Spanish? And I know my Spanish is totally corrupted by Portuguese now, but, uh, and they said, oh, it's pretty good. You sound like a Mexican, though. Uh, <laughs> so that is a compliment. Compliment because, 
because that's what I should sound like. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. That's where I learned it. Um, so um, I, I just can't think of anything that gives me more pleasure <laughs> than to be able to listen to um, Peter Haas speaking on a text I recorded and know what they're talking about, <laughs> or listen to uh, music in Portuguese and, and really understand it, read books in Portuguese. These are things that have changed my life and, and made it better. I wished I spoke more languages, but <laughs> yeah. unfortunately, I, uh, you know, I speak four, uh, and that's about it. Yeah, I, 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 I studied over two dozen. Wow, wow. Um, well, well, that's really interesting. In fact, um, I, I actually first... Because the, 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 the first I ever heard about you was all of your work related to, to the Peter Hunt language. And, and then one day I was on YouTube and uh, actually I was on Reddit and somebody said, you should check out this video of this monolingual fieldwork demonstration. And I was like, okay, and I was watching it and I, I didn't make the connection. I didn't realize that, that, you know, Daniel Everett, the monolingual demonstration guy was, was the Peter Hunt guy. And, and just, just watching that video. And I recommend that, that anybody watches it. I think it's, it's about an hour long. Um, I can't remember, yeah. I can't remember the language of, of the other woman. It was a very well, the strange... language turned out to be Hmong, H-M-O-N-G, which is the language of uh, Clint Eastwood's movie, Grand Torino, his oh. neighbors, oh, okay. that community. Uh, and I didn't realize that at the time. Of course, part of the monolingual is I'm not supposed to know anything about the language before the person walks in. And it's always a bit intimidating because I was doing that particular demonstration in front of 500 PhDs in linguistics at the <laughs> Linguistic Society of America, including a couple of people on the front row who were specialists in that language. Um, but, you know, wow. you, just, uh, you just have to... Learning a language is making a fool of yourself a lot. <laughs> um, and, and that's just the way it is. You know, my kids went to Brazil when I went to Brazil, and they got into Brazilian schools, and by the end of the first six months, they all spoke perfect Portuguese, and I was still struggling, so I spoke at my daughter's school, my, my oldest daughter's schools, I think she was in fifth grade, and uh, on the way home, she told me all the things I did wrong in the language, and, you know, um, that's just what happens when you learn a yeah. language. You've got to put yourself out there but what I find is that the speakers of the language, um, uh, no matter what their reputation is for being hostile to those who don't speak their language well, even, say, France, um, <laughs> they're always uh, very helpful and appreciative when, when you're trying your best. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and it's interesting what you were saying before about, about learning a language is, is making a fool of yourself, because... I think that's another thing that that a lot of language classes don't don't deal with is the element of fear because it can really paralyze people. You know, people might have all this great knowledge in their head, but they just can't. You know, they're, they're too afraid to have a conversation or to, you know. Yeah, I remember all kinds of errors that I made in Portuguese, like the word for coconut is coco, <laughs> and the word for feces is coco, and uh, asking for an ice cream of the wrong kind. <laughs> and, uh, and my kids were just, they loved every second of it. They just were laughing, and they, they just loved every bit of my mistakes because they didn't make them. In fact, they say to me now, they're all fully grown, and they say, 
thanks so much for Portuguese. I don't ever even remember learning it, but huh. now it's just as much a part of me as English is. Just one one sort of final thing I want to talk to you about, because because you mentioned earlier that that you know you say at the end of your monolingual demonstrations, you say you sort of joke that you just repeat that every day and then you'll learn a language. But I'm wondering, you know, maybe what, what the science might, might tell us about, about really what is a, an, a really effective way to learn a language. Because, you know, is, is it just that simple to just sort of immerse yourself, you know, every day and w without studying any grammar or, you know what I mean? No, actually, I use all the tools at my disposal. If there's a grammar, I read it and I study it. If there are pronunciation guides, I read them, I study them, I practice them. If there aren't any, I don't have access to those. I make my own. Um, but I don't exclude things. I, I use every bit of information I can get. But there's another thing to learning a foreign language. It really helps if you need to speak it. Hmm. And by that, I don't mean just for business purposes. I mean, you put yourself in an environment where if you can't speak it, you can't talk. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a really important part of it. So you have to create an environment in which speaking that language is part of everyday well-being, not just survival, but well-being. You're not going to have any friends if you don't speak the language. You won't have anybody to tell your problems to. So <laughs> I use grammar. I use monolingual method. I use uh, my, my training in phonetics. I mean, I would recommend that everybody have some basic training Meaning in phonetics, how human sounds are made and how to perceive different sounds. Because the surprising thing is, of the 7,000 plus languages in the world, they all use the same relatively small set of a couple of hundred sounds. Mm. And that's it. So no matter how exotic they sound to our ears, from Norwegian to, to uh, uh, Chinese or Mandarin, uh, they're, they're all using the same sounds, any African language, any American Indian language, or native indigenous language to the Americas. Um, these are all uh, the same sounds, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, some of them are more um, exotic, maybe like clicks and pops and inhales and weird, you know, weird trills, yeah, yeah. You know? These tend to be the clicks, ironically. Well, not ironically, but interestingly, are found only in a certain part of Africa. You don't find clicks outside of there. So those really good example of how culture influences language. Because, uh, but still, you know, when I was learning phonetics, we had to make all kinds. Of, we had to make all the clicks that are known, uh, or that they, my teachers knew about anyway. So we had to <laughs> practice these clicks. And I can remember walking around the college campus at the University of Oklahoma and imitating all the you know all these clicks working hard to produce these clicks and ejectives and glottal stops and all this stuff but um but really you know children learn this just fine when i went to the pitahan it was really a struggle to learn the language i looked around and i said damn it these three-year-olds speak it just fine and i'm a trained linguist so i'm gonna learn this <laughs> maybe i mean i think in in, in my experience you know, and again, this is this is not scientific. This is from what I see in the classroom. You know, I think the the reason that children are so successful at learning language sometimes is because they're just absolutely not afraid to just sort of repeat everything they hear and just and have a go. It's almost like when you remove all of the inhibition that comes with being an adult. You know, right. like you know, if you say to a child, you know, repeat this word in English, like a complicated word. 
they'll have a go, you know, and it'll, yeah. it'll get close. But an adult would, you know, the, the, the conscious mind gets in the way almost of, of, of learning, right? Well, there's another thing that children are doing that we're not doing very often when we're learning a second language. Jean Piaget, the uh, French uh, psychologist, said that um, um, children, when they're learning their first language, are constructing their first identity, who they are. Hmm. And so they're, they're figuring out who they are in the world, and that language is part of who they are. And so my argument would be that when we're in another culture, we're in another place to learn another language. We are amplifying our identity. We're becoming a different person than we were before. And we've got to think of it as constructing uh, a different person. When I think in Portuguese, I'm not translating from English. I'm sure it's the same thing for you in Spanish. It's just when I see, the, when I see this object in front of me that I can sit on, well, if I'm in a Portuguese environment, I know that's cadeira. And if I'm in a, uh, an English-speaking environment, I know that is chair. And if I'm a Peter Haas-speaking environment, I know that is chapapai uh, And, uh, wow. you know, which is, um, put your butt in that. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, don't, I don't bother to translate because these are just three words for the same object because I've created these expansions of my own identity. Mm. Well, I mean, that's because I know that's something that you've talked about in the past. It's like, why, why is it important for people to learn languages? Because, you know, monolingual English speakers, you know, we're, we're in a very lucky position in the world. We can go, yeah. you know, the, 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 the onus is on everyone else to learn English, right? You know, that's how right. it feels, right? So right. What, well, what, what's our incentive? Degree. What's our incentive to, to learn French or, or Pidahan or... <laughs> well, just think of how you feel when somebody masters English. You feel, well, some people will just take it for granted. Why wouldn't they learn English? But it... If you're a somewhat sensitive person, you realize they've made an effort to learn my language. I mean, you know, and, and you relate to them more. If they speak very bad English and you're speaking to them at a business meeting, you think of them as less intelligent than they are. They come across as differently. Mm. Um, well, but at the same time, they're earning goodwill by making this effort, if they are, in fact. When you are in another country, sure, I can speak English in, in Paris, and I can speak English in Beijing, but I'm just a number then. I'm not mm -hmm. somebody who, who stands out as respecting their culture and respecting their language and wanting to make an effort to really um, show them how much I respect them. And so when you learn another language, you develop a level of relationship with the speakers of that language that you simply cannot develop. So if you're a business person trying to sell a product in China, if you've taken the time to learn Chinese, Mandarin or, or uh, Cantonese or whatever uh, actual language you're learning, um, that resonates well with the people, especially if it goes along with the food. You know, I mean, it, cultural acquisition is should be seamless. The Peter Hunt told me one time that uh, one reason, they saw me eating a salad, because I, had, I brought in a salad by, by plane when I came in, and I missed the vegetables. <laughs> and they said, that's why you still don't speak our language well, because we don't eat leaves. Uh, <laughs> wow. And, and you're going to eat leaves, you're not, you know, Peter Haas, just, we just eat meat and fish, you know. Um, <laughs> wow. So, well, I mean, this is, this is actually one of the sort of the central 
the central things in your book is is basically you know how how integral culture is well not not only to language but well pretty much to to human existence um yeah it is our cognitive ability the only way we can exist as a as a species is because we have broken up into individual societies that have their own values knowledge structures and social roles which i i use to describe culture um that enable us to share knowledge to transmit knowledge to uh, have problems solved for us we don't have to solve every problem that's going to face us in life on our own because most of the problems have been solved for us by other members of our culture. We just have to imitate their solutions. You know, uh, that can be a curse too because it takes pressure off the need to innovate. So we pay innovators usually if they're successful. I mean, most innovation fails, but some innovation succeeds. But we can survive without a lot of innovation because our cultures make it possible to live life with less effort. <laughs> I mean, that, that is actually a concept that really blew my mind in the book. The idea that, 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 you know, people think that like, before I read the book, I had this idea that I was born into the world almost like, like a clean slate. Right. Right. But, but no, like simply being born into this culture that's already been developed over centuries, you know, that includes right. all of the technology we have, you know, the way we live, all of that. It's like, I, I just instantly acquire thousands of years of culture just by being born. I mean, that blows my mind. Yeah, I mean, you take a child just a few months old, we talk about their language learning abilities, but it's not just language. Children are, are little Google uh, search engines. I mean, they're learning everything quickly. I mean, uh, they're their brains are powerful computers. They're learning culture. They're learning language. They're learning the way the two go together. They're learning uh, all kinds of things at the same time about their environment. So, you know, you take a peanut hot child who's three years old and compare them to an American child who's three years old. They are very, very different. But it's not because of any genetic distinction. Um, yeah, I mean, there certainly are genes for different color skin and things, but no cognitive genetic distinctions. They're just as smart as we are, uh, um, or vice versa. But but they're born into a culture, we're born into a culture, and we are be, being differentiated uh, from the day we're born. It is, it is fascinating, really fascinating. You know, what would be your, what would be your message to anybody out there who is, who is trying to learn a language and, you know, maybe it's not their first time, you know, maybe it's like the second attempt and they feel like they're not progressing and they're frustrated and like, what, what would you sort of say to somebody who, who really wants to learn a language, but sort of doesn't, doesn't know what to do, you know? First, keep at it. You'll never regret it for as long as you live once you learn that language. You'll never wish you hadn't learned it. <laughs> Second, practice every day. If you can be with speakers, that's great. Listen to the music in that language. Try to read books in that language. I mean, I used to read Brazilian news magazines when I understood very little, and I would circle all the words that I didn't know, which was most of them, <laughs> and I would work on those, and I would listen to Brazilian TV, and I didn't understand any of it. And I would go outside and talk to Brazilians. I mean, I used to pay people to come by and just talk to me. Uh, And so people would come and just sit with me for an hour and talk to me. And I said, but I'm not paying you if you don't correct me. You have to correct me. And um, there are all kinds of methods one can come up with. But stick with it 
and practice and put yourself in a place where you need to speak if, it, if at all possible. Yeah, okay. I think that's, you know, that's, that's solid advice. You know, it's solid advice and, you know, it's, and it's common sense advice, you know, because it, it's so difficult for me, uh, not difficult for me, frustrating. It angers me so much to see so much of the, what you were talking about before. You know, companies making promises about learning lang languages in 90 days and, the, you know, the easy way, you know, five minutes a day and all that stuff. It, it, it's very frustrating. It's just like trying to get your body in shape. You can buy machines that help, but there's no machine that's going to get your body in shape in 90 days. Well, they're going to get you in better shape in 90 days. But if you want to really get in shape, you got to work at it every day. And the funny thing is, you got to practice. You got to do it. You know, it's hard. It's just hard to get in shape and stay in shape. Yeah. Um, but is it worth it? Well, you add years to your life. You feel a lot better. Um, yeah, I think it's worth it to do that. Yeah. But it is not free. No good. I mean, these things, no pain, no gain. And, and you have to think about that in language learning, too. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Um, I agree. Well, so it, it has been an honor to talk to you today. Um, Thanks. It's been great to talk to you, too. <laughs> so there you go. The person who probably knows more about language than most people on the planet, giving you the secret to learning a language. Free. And the secret is that there is no secret. It's just hard work and dedication. And it's really important for you to know this because it is the truth. And unless you really understand the truth, you're not going to succeed at learning a language. And I want you all to succeed because I want you to remember the other really important thing that Dan said. Learning a language will change your life. And that's what I want for you. I'm Christian. This is Kangaroo English. I'll see you in class.